Welcome to Go Behind the Ballot, a podcast where two Texas moms go on an educational quest to demystify Texas politics. Join me, Nicole Abshire, and my co-host, Claire Campos O'Neill, as we deep dive into the most burning issues, hear stories from candidates, and offer hope in these challenging political times. Let's saddle up and go behind the ballot. Hi, y'all. It's Claire and Nicole. We have an awesome episode for y'all. We spoke with Patty Everett. She knows so much about charter schools in Texas. And I was just so happy to have this chat. I personally know Patty. I guess I'll share a little bit of the background. I live in a newer neighborhood and there was this piece of land in my neighborhood that was sold to a charter school. And a lot of us were like, er, like, how is that possible? Because we had another school down the road that just opened another one, like half a mile away. And we were hoping in this commercial space, we were going to get a grocery store or restaurants or doctor's office, anything but a school because we already had schools. So that led me on this deep dive down the rabbit hole to figure out what had happened. And that's how I found Patty. And I was like, Patty, she has to share this with everyone. So that's how this episode came together. So with all that, I still learned some new things because Patty is just a wealth of knowledge. But Nicole, what were your thoughts? I mean, mind blown. I have not taken this many notes on any episode so far, because I just was completely surprised by the next new bit of information. And I kept thinking, this is a bombshell. This is a bombshell. And here's the truth of the matter, right? And this is why I really appreciated Patty's point of view, is that this isn't about trying to determine whether charter schools are good or bad, right? That's not our mission here. The mission that we have begun, and I think what Patty outlines really well, is just trying to make the information about charter schools more transparent so that we can have a conversation about how they affect communities and how they affect the public school system in general. But there is so much information that we do not know. And that, thank goodness, people like Patty Everett are on the front lines of investigating and sharing and disclosing because we need to have this kind of conversation. So yes, I was just truly gobsmacked so many times and so grateful for her willingness to seek out this information, to be constantly researching and asking questions. I mean, one thing I'd love to ask her if we ever sat down again, which by the way, we could do probably what an eight episode series just with her, but is how many Freedom of Information Acts she has filed to get some of this information. So many, I'm sure of it. Yeah, like you're saying, like it's another conversation to assess what are the advantages and disadvantages of charter schools. We can't even have that conversation because first we have to have the conversation of what are charter schools? How are they different from local public schools? And that information is very hard to find. And like you're saying, Patty has gathered a lot of this through filing Freedom of Information Acts to acquire those numbers and that and like meeting minutes, but it's not readily available. And that's why I'm so grateful to someone like her because she's done the hard work, most of it on her free time to put it together. And she's making that picture clear, which I really appreciate. And yeah, I think this was very enlightening if you want to understand charters in Texas. It's one for the books, that's for sure. All right, let's check it out. Patty, thank you for joining us. I think just to kick off, if you could tell us a little bit about you, your story, and how you got into public education advocacy, I think that would help us to set the stage on where you come from. Thank you guys so much. It's a great opportunity. And I think what you're doing is great to really go in depth on some of these issues, because I find even for me, and I spend lots of time trying to understand processes and systems in education, and it can be very complicated particularly for a parent who is just trying to make the best choice for their kid. And I always want to say that even though I now have understand and really believe that charter schools are a really big risk for the continuation of public education as we know it, true public education, I really respect parents trying to do the best for their children. And I think part of the problem is they don't really have the information they need to make really, really valid choices. It's very hard to find. And so that's part of my mission is just to make things more transparent for parents. And in fact, we had a bill in the legislature, which charter schools oppose, which would just make information practical things like, does a charter provide transportation for my kid? 
I also really respect charter school teachers. I think many of them are really, they are very dedicated to the kids as most teachers are. I just think that often they don't see this bigger picture. And I talk to a lot of them, both current and former charter parents. I think it's the charter system that really is the problem and there are charters who take advantage of it. And so that's sort of my mission. I came up through public schools. My son went to public school. I was involved in all the things you guys are involved in, CAC and PTA and events and Halloween carnivals, all that stuff. But I really only began to really think about the system of public schools when I actually worked at a big foundation and we implemented a college readiness program at all the high schools in Austin. And I worked with principals, et cetera, on behalf of the foundation to ensure we kids had college access. And that kind of got me into then working actually for AISD to do a lot of innovation. And as a result of that, we traveled around the country. I had no particular bias towards charter schools. I knew nothing about them. This is in the mid-2000s. But we were able, working with some of the same foundations that are big supporters of charter schools, to look at options around the country. And so we went to a lot of charter schools, both in Texas and New York and other places, And my colleagues and I were just, quite frankly, fairly stunned at some of the practices which would never be allowed at AISD. And it made me curious about charters. They were not then as prolific as they are now. And then when we had a new superintendent in Austin who gave one of our elementary schools to IDEA Public Schools, parents were furious. There was no parent outreach until the very, very end. And so IDEA took over this elementary school in East Austin without parental approval or anything. One of the first things they did was get rid of the library, which nobody could understand that. The community elected a new board based largely on just no parent engagement around these big education decisions. And the first thing the board did was to cancel the contract with IDEA. And so IDEA said, well, that's okay. We'll just open our own campus, which they did, their first campus in Austin. And I started asking, how do charters get to do that? (laughs) Here you have a community that was really outraged by this action. But the charter school can just do that. And that got me into the whole process, which, as you know, Claire, is kind of a crazy process, especially for an existing charter school like IDEA. No parent, parents don't get asked. They don't know about it. There's no public notice, no public meeting. That got me really involved in it. And so that was about, gosh, it's been almost 10 years ago. And that kind of got me on this pathway of just trying to understand how charter schools operate and what the impact is on public education. Yes, I really appreciate all the research you've done because I was sharing with Nicole how we initially connected. And that was when Idea Charter School bought some land in my neighborhood. And I just didn't understand, similarly to the parents, it sounds like from the Austin community, how this was allowed to happen because there was no input. I was like, wait a minute, aren't charter schools public schools? If they're public schools, where was the public's opportunity to say something? And there wasn't one. And I just really wanted to understand how this happened. And it was so difficult. Like you were saying in the beginning, I couldn't find an article that laid out the way charters work with public schools, any of that. And I was telling Nicole, I would just like try to find anything that sort of connected charter schools to transparency and public accountability. And it was through finding articles where a superintendent made some offhanded remark or a school board member, and I would find them on Twitter, send them a message and was like, can you explain this to me? And a lot of people pointed me back to you. And I was like, oh, I mean, it's great that you know it, but man, like, why is this so abstruse? Is that the word? It was so in the dark. And that made me feel crazy. I just wanted to know. That's what this podcast is for, to help people who are like, how is this the way it is? I just want to understand. I want to jump into, Claire, what you've talked about in your process, which is I want to highlight that you said there were already two schools within, what did you say, a two-mile radius? Yeah, there would have been three in a two-mile radius had idea been allowed. Okay. And you also mentioned that those schools were under-enrolled already. So the other thing that I think is really baffling to me is that this isn't addressing a problem, Right this idea coming into your neighborhood. There's not a problem that they're solving, right? The problem is actually under enrollment and this isn't going to help. So it's just wild that they're getting to come in without any clear oversight from the public to not actually solve a problem that exists. Yeah. So Patty, can you take us back to the beginning? When I was in school, I don't think there were any charters. Now, as my son's starting pre-K, they're everywhere. How do we get to where we are now, where they feel like they're on every corner, at least in Texas? Back in sort of the mid-2000s, 
So there's a couple of things. So charters were approved. They've been around. This is will be going into their 28th year. And literally for about 25 years, there was very, really no, the way, and another way I got involved is I just found these big gaps in kind of public policy understanding of charter schools in that I couldn't find information either. And it's just that partly the issues with all the education organizations, there's so many big issues with salary and safety and funding that those things just take the front seat. And so charter schools really had about 20, 25 years of just kind of being out there and nobody really knew much. About it. Yeah, just under the radar. That's a good way to describe it. And certainly no one really understood very well how they operated. And that's what I found. Another reason I got involved is just to understand it. And it's really been the last few years and largely because of efforts by state reps, Donna Howard, for example, who began to, for example, just disaggregate the data on the budget. We didn't even know how much charter schools cost. And then great work by other organizations that have been able to look at the data and figure out, for example, charter schools get more money per student than our public school. I hope we can talk about that. But back in the mid-2000s, charter schools were kind of, you didn't even really see them much. And KIPP was, I believe, one of the first charter schools in Austin. Probably there are a couple other smaller schools that were here. And some were kind of created by parents who didn't like testing. And you know, it was just kind of, again, around 2010-ish, maybe 2008-ish, there began this big expansion. And I think charters began to really understand how easy it was to expand in Texas. And that's a really, really big item. And the other thing we talked at one time about sort of the movie waiting, the documentary waiting for Superman, which I is kind of so old hat now because people like to call it still waiting for Superman because of course, and that came out in 2010. So it's very old, but it got the attention of Wall Street and hedge funds and reformers. And it kind of, I do think it galvanized and led to a lot more expansion back then. Again, so many things have been disproven. There were so many things omitted from that, the sort of discussion of charters, the things like the impact of poverty on children and education, the underfunding of public schools. So we don't need to talk too much about that. And then charters really began to see, I think, the easiness of expanding the financial benefit, et cetera. So idea, for example, just to give you, maybe we should talk very briefly about the expansion process just while we're here about this point in the conversation, and we can loop back into some of the other questions. But idea was approved for one campus in, I think it was around 2000, so about 20 years ago. But in Texas, and this is very unusual in some ways, once a charter gets approved, and at this point in the process, it is a new charter is voted on by our elected state board of education. So there is a public process there. It could be improved, but it's pretty strenuous. There's a long application. Parents have an opportunity. Now, just three years ago, we really pushed for this. There's now a public hearing before the state board, but not many charter. There aren't many new charters. The TEA does, I think actually TA staff does a pretty good job of vetting the charters. There'll be like 28 who apply and maybe eight make it between maybe five and eight make it to the state board. But once you get a charter, and this is the important thing, and meet certain TEA criteria, a charter can expand anywhere in Texas with an unlimited number of new charter campuses. So IDEA starts out, it's approved by one for the Rio Grande Valley. There is never another public hearing. There is never another elected body who has anything to say. And there is no general notice to the public. They now have 98 campuses. So 97 of those campuses across Texas have been approved with virtually no public process. That is my problem. It's approved solely, solely by the commissioner of education, whoever that commissioner is. That's a problem. Do we even know what he's assessing to vet these? Again, new applications have very clear criteria. They're laid out. You can see what they are. Not so with amendments, although we do know they check with each department to determine, are there financial reports in order? Are there any legal problems, et cetera? In my research, here's an amazing number, but since 2010, 946, 946 new campuses have been approved through the amendment process. Again, no public process, no elected body involved. And so that then becomes a huge problem in terms of the budget, which we'll get into later, I think, because that is also an unlimited draw on public funds solely for charter schools. That's a big deal. So I guess to reiterate, so right now the process is if me and Nicole want to start a new charter, we have this great idea, the Claire and Nicole School. (laughs) 
we would have to apply to TEA. TEA would vet it, say, yeah, you can do this. No, you can't. They said, yes. Then we go before the SBOE and the SBOE, their elected members, they would ask us questions about our school. What's your transportation look like? What's your focus? All that. And at that point, can there be public testimony too? There can't, right? There is a public hearing. Charters have to do at least one public meeting before they submit their application. And we've now, those meetings used to not be really public because they would put, all they have to do is put a little notice in the newspaper, like in the advertisement, no more than 18 months before they submit the application. That was crazy because that meant, oh, this charter could be applying for a charter in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, four-county area. They have to put one meeting. We don't know where it's going to go. One notice, and it could be any time in 18 months. It would be like, you got to look at the morning news, the Star-Telegram, the Grapevine paper for 18 months every day to find out about the Right. That has changed, and we worked really hard. Charters now have to let state board members know. TEA now does a good job of posting the public meeting. So there's a public meeting. At least there's an opportunity. Then TEA go through an internal and external review. The commissioner then makes his recommendations to the state board. And then there's actually, and then there's a real public hearing, lots of discussion. There is a pretty robust process. And then you can go testify and tell the state board what you think. Then they vote to either uphold the commissioner, which is a yes, or to veto. I worked on the very first veto the state board did, which was in 2013. They've only done, I don't have my notes. I think they've only done about maybe 10 vetoes since 2013. So they're actually very supportive of charters, although they get a lot of criticism from charter schools for vetoing any charter. This last year was pretty incredible. There were lots of problems with the charter schools and they vetoed four out of five, but that is a very outlier year. So it's pretty rigorous now, it sounds like, for a new charter. So if me and Nicole go through this whole process and somehow we make it through and we set up the Claire Nicole Charter School, then if we want to open our subsequent school, all we have to do is apply for a charter amendment, which goes before TEA. The educational commissioner looks at it, says yes or no. But the whole other process, it's already done. Never have to go through that again. And again, you do have to meet some requirements. I won't go into those, but you have to be in operation for a certain number of years. You can't have over a certain percentage of low-performing campuses. But the key to that is the commissioner can also waive those particular requirements, which he does all the time, to allow a charter. And that's one of the issues we have. It's like, why do we have rules if all you do is waive them? So there is one notice. A notice is sent to the school district about the charter at some point. Now, the charter board will have already approved the charter, but there is a notice sent to the school district. And there is a notice sent to legislators who represent that district. The problem with that is that legislators don't know what to do with it. I mean, the public is dependent on either the right person at the district getting the notice. Often it just disappears because hundreds of things come into a district every day. Same with the legislator. They don't really know what to do with it. Maybe charter friendly. So there's no public notice. Now, we have in the last year... TA used to only, there was no list of the amendments posted on the TA website. So I've done hundreds of public information requests just to get the darn list. TA is now posting it. Now, the average parent or you guys are not going to look at that list every day to determine what's been filed. I do that and I try to alert and several other people do that and try to alert people. But there is no public notice, no meeting. Again, you'll really not know unless like I call you, you probably won't know about it unless you happen to see the site plan for your, (laughs) that you discovered at Bell Valley. So it's not a public process at all. And then even if you find it, there's really not much to do about it. In Austin, parents got really concerned about a basis charter school going in in the middle of several high-performing campuses and dozens of letters were written to the commissioner, but it was approved So can we pause for a second, Nicole? What questions do you have at this point? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Well, I'm just like, you are dropping bombshells (laughs) right and left. I am just like stunned. And I feel like if anybody watches this on YouTube, you are going to see this like ridiculous face of mine. The things that really just blew my mind were when you talked about the proliferation of campuses, that idea went from one campus to now has 98. That is just wild to me. And then what did you say since what year there's 946 new charter campuses? That were approved. Now, some of those may not open, so, but that many have been approved since 2010, by the, solely by the commissioner. 
Wow. I mean, that just blows my mind. The other bombshell piece for me was when you said that there is more money allocated per student at charter schools than in public schools. Yeah, maybe we can transition into the finance side of it and how different it is for public births. What's the good way to distinguish between charters? Is it local ISDs and charters? Right, because you can't say they're not public, right? And we've been talking about how the language is confusing. Just to look back at one point, we'll talk about the differences on charters. But I think that one of the really big issues to me about this expansion is the idea of democratic process. And so that I think is, and really in some ways, if a community has voice and there's really lots of input and they decide they want a charter, hey, that is that I may disagree, but it's a valid process. But democracy can be kind of messy. And I think that what I found is in legislation, we may not have time to talk about that, is that their charters have a reluctance to get involved in the public process, whether it's a bond, charter approval, et cetera. They don't like that. And it, hey, democracy can be messy because parents care very deeply about the education and the schools in their community. That's a big issue. And charter boards are self-selected. They're not elected. That's a very important point because you all know your school board members. And if you have a problem, school board members publish their numbers and they get, believe me, parents know where to find them. And if you really don't like their policies, you vote them out. And that happens a lot. And it's happening now. And not so with the charter boards. So a charter idea, let's just use that as an example, wants to locate in Dell Valley. That board is made up of, usually there's one member from a region. So there was now, I don't, several years ago there wasn't, but now there's one member from Austin on the idea, they call it a national board now. But that board meets in the Rio Grande Valley. I've listened to many meetings. There rarely is any parent there at all. I mean, occasionally a parent will show up with some announcement. But that board that is not from our community makes the decision about what's going to happen in our community. In many charters, they have out-of-state board members, and so they're not engaged. They don't have a stake in our community, but they are determining that millions of dollars in revenue will get drained from our public schools without having any stake and no board members from our community. Again, that's a subversion of the democratic process. So if we turn to budget, I think it's important for the reason that when I say we, we is a coalition of education organizations, parents, school districts, kind of very loose, but We have a legislative agenda each year, and we've really been pushing for integrating information and evaluation of how new charter schools impact our public school system. How's it going to impact Dell Valley ISD, Austin ISD, our other ISDs when new charters are located? And again, we didn't really know much about this for a long time, probably for 20 years or more, because the data wasn't disaggregated for charter schools. And now we know a lot more. So it's particularly important now because of the proliferation and the concentration of charter schools. And Texas Parent PAC has a quote, which I like, and I think it's really important that communities and parents, whether you're a taxpayer, a parent, a grandparent, or just a community, someone interested in your community, understand that this is having a huge impact on your community. When you begin to lose your public schools, when you are spending taxpayer dollars to basically create a dual system. So you have in Austin, there are probably, oh gosh, 30 or 40 charter schools. Each one has a superintendent. That's a cost. You really need those costs to pay a superintendent. Idea pay their superintendent $500,000 a year. It's like, that's insane. You have no control over that. It's boards that are self-selected. But Texas Parent has a quote, and I'll read it. We're witnessing the most serious threat Texas public education has faced in our lifetimes. How shall we fight back and stand up for our neighborhood schools? And my sort of theme is they are our public schools and they belong to our community. So that's why we have to have communities involved. And you can see it on the finance end. So one important thing to remember, the Legislative Budget Board has projected for this next biennium, charter schools will be 8% of the student population in Texas, but they'll get almost 20% of all state funds. That is disproportionate and that is not sustainable. But that's statewide. When you look at what's happening in the primary counties where charter schools operate or primary districts, it is an even more intensive. In Austin, about 20% of enrollment students transfer to charter schools. That's over $100 million a year of revenue loss. 
And why is that important? Well, doesn't the revenue just, if the student doesn't go to AISD, don't just, the money follows the student, so it goes to a charter school. So what's the problem? AISD just cuts its costs and everybody's happy. That is not the way it works is the problem. It's much more complicated. So the way charter schools work, and we can show this in the data, they serve larger areas. And so they may take two kids, maybe let's say they're K through five, just for example, that or pre-K through five. So that may be, that's what, seven grade levels. And maybe the elementary school has three classes. So maybe a charter takes two kids from each class, but from 10 elementary schools around the area. What that means is that elementary school, so let's say it has 22 kids, which is, of course, we have public school districts have limits on class size. Charters don't, by the way. And I'll tell you the idea. There are no limits on class size. So let's say all their classes lose two kids. So they go from 22 to 20. Well, you can't combine classes and get rid of a teacher because you don't want to have 40 kids in an element. And you can't have, by law, you can't have four. So you can't cut any teacher. And that happens in all the 10 elementary schools. So you can't cut a teacher. That school still has to operate for all the kids who remain there, the majority of kids. So you've got fixed costs, utilities, janitorial, maintenance. You still got to run your bus transportation. And yet you have less revenue to pay the same costs. We call that stranded costs. So what happens, and this is why we're in a crisis, you reach a tipping point. When you're losing $100 million a year, you got to start looking for, if your costs are largely the same, well, you have to cut something. So what do you start cutting? You start cutting enrichment programs, extracurriculars, elective classes, more counselors, social workers, because you have to do the core things that are mandated by law, safety, teachers, teach all the main core classes. And what's happening, Austin is cutting back on art and music right now. Why? Revenue. Two or three years ago, Austin was trying to close 10 schools, mostly in East Austin. Why? Primarily charter schools. So there's an impact. And if you're a taxpayer, if you're a parent, grandparent, and it doesn't matter where you live, you may live in West Austin and never really see a charter school, although they are coming, they're expanding into the more suburban areas now in Georgetown, Leander, Cedar Park, because they've really saturated the urban core. So you may not really see them very much, but they're affecting you because when the district has to start making those hard budget decisions, it affects every student in the district. Can I highlight something? Because what I'm hearing is the strain then right on those schools. So they do cut art and they cut music. So then, of course, those schools become less attractive. Where are those families going to turn? Boom. They're going to want to go to that charter school down the road that can offer those things. So then it just completely exacerbates the issue. Charter schools spend millions of dollars on advertising. Public school districts don't, partly because parents want the money to go to the kids. But it's kind of like... I watched a video because I was just telling Claire before this, I saw a neighbor at the back of her car. She had for Valor Public Schools, and I'd never heard of it. So came home, did a little research. And boy, that video that they have on their website is super compelling, right? I can imagine if I had a little three-year-old and I'm starting to think about where to send them, it just like tugs at your heart. But yeah, I know that Austin ISD probably can't produce a video that's that slick and that attractive. Austin had an ad campaign and they parents were upset about it. But also, interestingly enough, the Texas Charter School Association has criticized ASD for advertising. Idea spent, I don't have the money, the dollars in front of me, but I believe last year they spent $14 million on advertising. It's a lot of money. And they advertised during the last game of the World Series. They advertised during the Super Bowl. And those are taxpayer dollars. And so, I mean, that's a problem. So how do you compete with that? One thing I want to talk you just mentioned it, which is there's this whole thing that we've kind of put together was how do you privatize public education and make it okay? First of all, you underfund schools. Texas is still in the bottom quarter. You limit transparency and accountability. So you don't really know what's going on. You allow charters to exclude high need students, which we'll talk about in a minute. So they self-select students. You over test and you punish districts with the star tests, which we know happens. You create an A through F accountability. Underfunding leads to cutting things that make schools really attractive, extracurriculars, theater, art, et cetera. And then privatization sounds like a really good thing. And that's why it's a real crisis right now. It's important for parents to understand it. Let me just briefly say how charters get more money. Charters get on average about $1,150 more per student in our maintenance and operation. Those are the dollars to pay teachers and operate schools. 
that's because of just a quirk in the school finance system. Charters get the average of an allotment that is intended to help school districts under 5,000 with economies of scale. So if you're in Marathon, Texas, out in Big Bend, I think they have like 70 students or something like that. It's a little bitty town. Um, They have a great little school system, but they still have to have a superintendent. They have to meet mandates. They have to have a PEMS coordinator for data. So that fund is intended to help these small school districts. Okay. So they get a higher about. Meet state mandates and all that kind of stuff. The crazy thing is, regardless of a charter school's size or enrollment, they get the average of that fund. So I'm picking on IDEA because I just had the data handy. IDEA has about 68,000 students. That's a lot more than 5,000. IDEA will get $68 million from, they cut, we call it the small to mid-size a lot this year. Now, Austin with 70 plus thousand gets zero. Del Valley with how many students do you have? 11,000, you get zero. IDEA with 68,000 students gets $68 million. So that's a problem. Now, small charters right now, if they're under 5,000, that would be fair. They have economies of scale too, but that's why charters get more money. So it's a quirk in the law that allows this? We kind of call it the charter allotment. We know it's there. You can see it on the TA documents on budget. I mean, everything I do, by the way, is, is public data. And I can show, I always try to in detail, but note, all my data because I want people to go look at it and know that it's accurate and I'm not playing with the numbers. You can see that. We also know a couple of years ago, State Representative Gina Hinojosa asked the Legislative Budget Board, simple question, if charters were funded the same as the district where they're located, meaning they'd get the same per student as Austin ISD, what would be the savings to the state? Gosh, about three or four years ago, so it's much more now. It's different now because of HB3. But at that time, the state would have saved $882 million, almost a billion dollars, if charters were funded the same. So that's an issue. And you think about an elementary classroom of 22 kids, a student leaves Del Valley or Austin ISD in Del Valley, let's say Del Valley, and they go to a charter school in Del Valley. I think in Del Valley, that student gets $1,170 more. In Austin, it's $1,182. It varies a little by district because of the way school finance works. The average is eleven fifty. That's twenty two, twenty five thousand dollars more that a charter gets for a typical elementary classroom of twenty two kids. That's a lot of money. If it's a school with five hundred kids, I don't have my calculator, but that's somewhere around six hundred thousand dollars more. That's a lot of money. That's an arts program. <laughs> and think about that times the whole charter enrollment. So that's, it's not a level playing field in terms of funding. And we've had several bills into just level the playing field. So with charter schools, are they just getting money from the state or are they also getting outside private money? All we know, and the only thing that's reported is our state funds and of course, federal funds. State funds are the huge bulk of it. Many charter schools do have very, they spend a lot on fundraising. Idea, again, idea partly because they're the largest charter school in the state. So they're a good example, but They pay a lot. They have a big budget for fundraising. So they get tens of million dollars a year from the private sector. That's generally not reported on anything that we get in terms of a public document. And I mean, districts get some private money, but nothing compared to some of the larger charter schools that get. I look at the Walton Foundation. I look at just some of these big foundations. And I mean, literally the money going to charter schools, to charter organizations just in Texas is tens of millions of dollars. When you say $14 million is spent on ads by IDEA, and I'm like, is that our money? Yes, that's taxpayer money because it's reported in there. You know, at some point we ought to do a smaller thing on just finding data, but you can go to a charter school's annual financial report. That's what I go to and the number's there. So those are taxpayer dollars. That is (laughs) bombshells. You are just dropping bombs. Wow. Even though I get like what you're pointing out, this is all public information. You're just being transparent. But I think for me, it feels like bombshells because there is so much murkiness around this and so much, I don't want to say misinformation, but it just, there's no information. One important question for parents, I think, and we might talk a little bit about some of the differences because I'll be honest, there are some things I'm still trying to research because it's all an issue of time. So a parent might ask, well, it seems to me I'm getting this great letter. I know parents who are happy at this particular charter school or many charter schools. So I think it is important to ask what some of the differences are and then to look at. And that 
is in some ways the most important thing because there are some charter schools that maybe have higher performance than a nearby neighborhood school, although not always. And overall, charters don't perform better than when you look at district ratings. Public school districts have higher A and B ratings than charter schools. But it's a valid question to ask that question. But you have to know how charter schools select students in order to understand some of the issues. And I just put together some, the reason I was up last night, I was putting together some information about basis charter schools in uh, San Antonio that I'll kind of weave into this conversation because it really is a poster child for how charters can self-select students. Technically, they have to accept all students. Technically, and they have a lot. So parents apply. There's a lottery. But the first thing that's really important to understand is that by law, and this is by law, Representative Hinojosa has introduced a bill every year for the last three sessions to eliminate this exclusion. But a charter school in Texas does not have to enroll a student. They used to not even have to admit a student. We got that changed, which I won't go into detail. But they do not have to enroll a student who's selected through the lottery if that student has any discipline history. That can be for minor offenses sent to the principal office when a child is younger. And charter schools denied that for a long time, so they don't accept all children. They denied that for a long time as they have many narratives and as we have begun to understand how this really works. They now, their argument is, well, we don't want a student in our charter school who would be dangerous to our students or teachers, and we don't have the same capacity of a public school district to deal with these kinds of students. And of course, that's an issue for public schools as well. But the irony of all that is that is not what the law says. And that is not what charter schools do. I mean, some do and some don't. Most do. And you can we know it because we used to look at their applications. They say we reserve the right to exclude a student has any discipline problems, period. Very broad. But the issue is that charter schools ironically must expel students for certain things, just the way public schools must do, but they have an easier time doing it. And they can actually expel a student for any reason in the student code of conduct. They are not limited to the expulsion reasons districts are limited to. So if they have a student who is a problem, they can expel them quickly. So it's not really a very good argument. So that exclusion discriminates against children with special needs, which is a very, and we know that from research because Special education students have higher rates of discipline infractions than other populations. So discriminates against kids of color who also, and that's both national research and research that's been done by Texas Appleseed here in Texas. And you can see that in the data. So what's important to know is charters don't take all kids. The second thing is you can see it in the data because charters serve about 33% fewer children with special needs. They not only serve fewer, they spend less money on them in public school districts. I was just looking at Basis Charter School. They have a campus called Shavano, which is in the Shavano neighborhood in San Antonio. And they are listed as one of the top high schools in Texas on U.S. News and World Report. But of course, the devil's always in the detail, right? Basis Shavano serves, first of all, they lose 65% of their students between eighth grade and when they're in 12th grade. What was that number again? 65%. This is all data from TEA. Because they call students, and you can see it in retention rates, et cetera, they only serve 1.1% of children with special needs. And in Northside ISD, the two closest campuses serve up to 13% kids with special needs, which is about right. I mean, those are examples of the differences in charter schools. Don't take all kids. Across the board, they serve fewer special needs kids and spend less money on them. But when you look at specific campuses, it can be just extraordinary like this one. Nicole, what does this make you think of? Because you're a former teacher. Yeah. Well, I just like (laughs) I just keep projecting out and seeing the stratification of these campuses. Right. It's so clear that there's this hierarchy being built of who is at which schools, which kids are getting served and how public what we're talking about, local ISDs, those public schools just become the safety net and the catch all for who's not wanted by the charters. And that just. Oh, that's the danger. I mean, that's the danger of having this eventually a two-tier system. If this keeps continuing, yeah. And again, there are a lot of false promises. So another difference, parents don't know. Charter school teachers do not have to be certified, and most are not. And parents don't know that. I had a parent just maybe a year ago come up to me and said, you won't believe this. Charter schools don't have to have certified teachers. I'm laughing just because, of course, I know that. But parents don't. How, how would they know that? IDEA has big billboards that say we have the highly qualified teachers. If you look at the data, they have 
far less experience in ISDs. They're paid less. Most of them are not certified. By the way, special ed and bilingual must be certified even at charter schools. Less experience, less time in the classroom. That's a problem as well because we know highly qualified teacher. It takes, you're a teacher. That first year or second year, you're kind of getting your feet on the ground. So teachers matter. <laughs> teachers matter. And they have, charters have much higher teacher attrition rates, partly because they hire younger teachers, they leave, et cetera. How are they allowed to do this? How are they allowed to have teachers that aren't certified? They're allowed to by state law. That's the kind of going back to sort of waiting for Superman, this idea that, oh, if we just remove lots of these really pesky rules and accountability and we create this big innovation, we're going to have to see this incredible change in student performance. And of course, that hasn't happened. And partly because some of these pesky things like parent rights, which is now in the vogue because of the governor, but charter parents lose a lot of rights under the law that public school teachers have. Pesky things like electing your board so that they're accountable. I did a public information request to try to get the board minutes for Harmony Public Schools several years ago. It took 18 months and a ruling by the attorney general that they had to give me the minutes of the board meeting. I was like, are you kidding me? Then this idea bought a boutique hotel back in 2019 in the Rio Grande Valley. And this was reported on one of the newspapers in the Valley. So the newspaper has asked for information about the purchase and IDEA refused their public information request. The attorney general ordered IDEA to provide the information and IDEA is now suing the attorney general because they don't want to turn the records over. So that's a problem. <laughs> that's a problem. That's okay. Not that's not another theme here, right? Is this controlling of information so that people don't even know what questions to ask? I think that is what I'm baffled by is that you are anticipating our questions. Thank you so much so that you can give us the answers that we need. But I think that is the recurring theme here is that with this withholding of information and standards that typical public schools are having to follow, nobody even knows what questions to ask or where to begin. Wow. I've been a parent and pretty informed, very involved, but it's hard to figure things out. And yet you've got the benefit in a public school for, again, hey, I am not an apologist for public school districts. As the board knows in Austin and superintendents, I've gone head to head several times with them on things like closing schools. But you have the ability to influence it. You have the ability to have meetings and public school districts do that at least. And then they have the board has to vote and they're accountable to you, not so the charters. Well, it sounds like there's an interesting tension that we're a tension point we're at right now with this idea of privatization being pushed and also parental involvement and how they do not really go together, at least in the current form of how these charters are operating. But I don't think people see that for what it is. I think because there's so much that is unknown, that it's really easy to try to fit that idea of parental choice and parental involvement into the box of charters, that it seems like it's a match. But I think what we're learning here is that it is actually not. But if again, if you don't know what questions to ask and you make assumptions, here's an assumption I had. I thought, of course, charter school teachers are certified. I had no idea that they weren't. And I wouldn't think to ask it because that would be an assumption that I would make. That is a really good point. And that I think a lot of parents think a charter school will operate much in the same way. They may have had kids in public school and they think there's going to be transportation. Most charter schools don't provide transportation. And that is also a way to limit children who come. Because when you think about it, if a parent has to have a reliable transportation, a car that works most of the time, and the flexibility to take their kid to the charter and pick them up every day, that's going to eliminate a lot of kids who can't get there, whose parents are working two jobs or don't have a car or whatever. And so I really think this idea not providing transportation is a real way to basically self-select your students. I will give charters some credit. I've been surprised to see in the last couple of years, some of the bigger charters are now spending more on transportation. So I think that's a good thing. But I think that I mentioned libraries, many charters, not all, some have counselors, many don't, but every school district has school nurses, forget that. And again, this generally speaking, because you can look at, and so for parents, if you want to know, if you're thinking about going to Valor and you want to know what they're spending on school nurses, you can look, it's very easy to find this information if you know where to look. So transportation basis, who I was talking about, they don't have a food service, so they don't provide free and reduced lunch. 
counselors, extracurriculars are often, they spend far less on that, et cetera. Don't take all kids. We have self-selected governance that's not accountable, often doesn't live in your community more and more. Most of the, I think 55% of charter students are actually in nine big charter schools. So there are lots of small charters, but most of the majority of students are in these very small numbers. So those boards do not live in Austin. So it sounds like the big charters, it's easier for them to grow. And the newer charters, there's more barriers. So it's harder for them to even come up if they wanted to, which is the system we have now. Yeah, for the new ones who have not even applied, they do have to go through a pretty strenuous application, which is good because that process has been criticized by charter advocates. But it's really important when you're approving a charter, it's going to educate our kids. I've seen some charter applications. I read them. They're about a thousand pages long and it's a pain, but you want to be sure they've got the capacity and the experience, et cetera. And many of the new applicants don't. So again, I think TEA does, the staff has really ramped up their game and they ask good questions. Doesn't always work out the way I might want it, but with the state board, but I think you do. One thing I was going to say, it's really important to understand, again, Texas Charter School Association will say we're not approving enough new charters through the application process. They never talk about the amendments. So again, remember, even though a limited number of new charters may get approved every year, which is a good thing because you don't want a charter that is not going to be, you talk about high quality, but not going to have the experience and capacity for kids. But that's not where charter expansion is. It is all with charter amendments. So I don't have my chart, but I believe last year, And do not quote me on this because I thought I had my chart, but I believe 80 new charter campuses were approved just last year. So that's huge. (laughs) That's a lot. You think about that. 80 campuses is a school district, is a very large school district, gets approved basically every year. Another, I mean, in terms of numbers, et cetera. Yeah. So speaking about assumptions, like if I go to a restaurant, I assume they're going to have a restroom. So it's weird to be like, wait, you don't have a restroom. (laughs) So same with these charter schools and them not having a library or nurses or the things we typically associate with schools, because that's probably what we had in our schools. What do you think are some good questions for parents to ask when they are evaluating where to send their child? I think just some of the ones that you just raised, which would be about the kinds of services, extracurriculars, if you're in a middle or high school electives. I think if you're in a high school, what are the career and technical education programs? Because those are very popular. They keep kids engaged. Charters spend, I think, half of what school districts spend on career and technical education. So I think really understanding it, although I will say, as you said, the videos look good, it's sometimes really hard. I think parents need to know if the school is certified as an alternative campus or a regular campus. That's a whole nother topic I won't get into very much, but I've looked at a charter in Dallas who is certified as an alternative campus, even though it has elementary students. And so their standards are much lower. And even though they may be A-rated, it is a totally different scoring system. But I've never found anything on their website that tells parents we have lower standards than all the other schools in Dallas. So you need to know that. They also need to look at where the board meets. So if you have a problem with the board, what is the process to talk to a board member so they understand the governance? I doubt if parents who go to IDEA really know the If you want to go talk to the board, you go to the Rio Grande Valley, or you can, I suppose you can do it by phone. Parents don't, but you can't go in person. And again, we had a bill called Informed Choice, which I hope will get filed again this year, which had a whole list of things that would just ask charters, require charters to list on their websites. You could see exactly, have the answers to these questions. Sometimes I try to find out which cities charters are providing transportation. And I mean, I can look at what they're spending on transportation but trying to get through to the right person in the charter, I have a hard time getting through. No one calls me back or you can't find the right person. So it's hard to find on your own. It really is. What's this make you think about, Nicole? <laughs> yeah, again, mind blown, mind blown. Well, I have such a basic question that I realized, like, let's not operate on assumptions, right? So let me ask the question. Are charter schools for profit? That's a good question. I still get that question from legislators. So. In Texas, they can be and they are in other states. Every state is different. In Texas, a charter has to be sponsored, have a sponsoring organization that is a nonprofit. So charters in Texas are nonprofit. That gets a little fuzzy sometimes because a charter school can hire a charter management organization 
or what they call an education management organization, which is usually for-profit. A charter management is usually nonprofit to really manage the entire, do most of the management of the charter. And again, that can be for-profit or nonprofit. And so usually a certain percentage, it can be anywhere from 8 to 18% of all state funds go to that organization. So it's a lot of money. And once they go there, it's hard to be accountable because they are a separate organization. So you can't always determine how they're spending that money. So it can be a for-profit that manages the charter. Their idea itself is a charter management organization. And then there are other charter management organizations that are entities from out of state or whatever that manage charters around the country. This is very confusing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah, it can be confusing. And, but, but can I also ask you something? So I think what this doesn't exclude, whether they are for-profit or not, doesn't mean they can pay at incredibly high levels that you're not going to see a local ISD superintendent paid at. Right. Like you were saying that was it the CEO of Idea is paid half a million dollars a year. Was. Yeah. Was. And so even though it might be nonprofit, I'm using with air quotes, that doesn't mean that people aren't paid exorbitant amounts of money or don't have huge ad budgets. Like I think sometimes I can maybe conflate nonprofit with sort of like low administrative costs and kind of charitable type activities, but I need to not conflate those things. So again, charters in Texas are nonprofit. So there are two issues related to just sort of this whole money thing. And they all really get back to accountability and the whole issue we talked about. Again, if you tune into a charter meeting on video, usually you can not always live, but you can tune in. There are rarely, rarely any parents or people from the public there. And of course, public school districts, you guys have been in meetings. I can, I've never been to a meeting where there aren't a lot of parents there and teachers and things like that. So charter schools, so that has its own just lack of accountability that nobody knows. I mean, I never tuned into board meetings when I was a parent and I certainly wouldn't go find them and know where to go. I mean, you just don't do, you don't have time. You're taking care of your kids and working and all that kind of stuff. So charters will do things like And because you don't have this accountability from the public and districts can screw up too and have, but usually parents ask questions, they tend to comply with public information requests better. Charters are, there's so many instances where charters spend dollar, public dollars on things that may not be illegal, but should not be spent with public funds. For example, a charter out of Dallas had a Houston, the Dallas campus spent, bought two luxury condos, one in Houston, one in Dallas. And the Houston Chronicle reported on this for record storage. And these condos are advertised as luxury condos with marble tabletops and a swimming pool on the third floor, you know, that kind of stuff. And that was the record storage. TA was quoted as saying, there's no prohibition against buying a residential property. They can do that. So there are a lot of things like that that are just so questionable, but they're not illegal. But a school district can't get away with that. As you may remember, getting back to IDEA, one of the things that the Houston Chronicle disclosed is that IDEA was trying to lease a $15 million jet, private jet, for the convenience of the senior staff and the board so they could travel around. You know, they have schools in different states. And it's not illegal. The problem is, I give one board member credit. I've listened to, they made this decision in about six minutes in the board meeting, but I give one board member credit who said, you know, maybe we should develop some talking points on this because people may want to know. And I'm like, yeah, I think you better. Can you imagine the outcry? Can you imagine if a local ISD wanted to lease a private jet? Well, it's such a disparity. I think about my local school. My neighbor, her daughter went there last year and she was like, Claire, you won't believe it. Their laminator went out and they can't, they can't laminate stuff anymore. And the laminator's $4,000. We have to go fundraise. And I'm like, yeah, let's fundraise. And then it's like, they're buying luxury condos and have jets. <laughs> like we can't get a laminator for the very basic functions of an elementary school. It's uh, it makes my hair on fire. And so what you want to have is some red flag to flag these things. The other thing that happens is Charter schools will create a independent entity, which can be a for-profit or a non-profit, and they can have board members. We call this a related party transaction. They can have board members or the superintendent on that independent entity, and they then that entity then buys the charter building and the charter leases from that entity. Now, that is... Sounds like WeWorks, <laughs> which is another mess. 
they do have to disclose that on their annual financial report, which usually is. You can usually find it there, but you have to go look for it on page 39 down at the bottom. And so that's the kind of thing that is problematic. They say we charge market rate, market value rates, blah, 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 but no one is on top of that. TEA does not even know which of those organizations are doing that. And then the important thing about that is at the end, public dollars pay for that facility, but in the end, they are owned by a third party, not by the charter. So if the charter goes out of business or whatever, or if they sell it, that money goes to that entity, even though public funds have paid for it. That's a huge problem. Yes. Oh, I've seen this before. I've seen this before. Again, we don't want public schools to have insider trading or related party transactions when they do. That's a problem. But with charter schools, it takes a lot of research to find it because you don't have that other layer of accountability. So that's what we're advocating for is more transparency and accountability because it's public funds. Yes. Uh, There's so much amazing information. Anytime I talk to you, Patty, I'm like, oh my gosh, "Ah, this too, this too. (laughs) You could do this all week long. Well, try to wrap up a little bit. I have a question. Nicole might have one more. But as we mentioned, parents are really busy. Sometimes it's just hard to look at their folders and see what's going on in their classroom life. What's one thing that you do recommend parents pay attention to if that's all they have time for? I think I'd like to address that in a little roundabout. I think it is important. I think like the work you all are doing, and I think that it's important for school districts to get to get more engaged. And it's tricky now because it's tricky for districts. So I think it's important for parents to begin to come together and ask for information like this. I think you all were really good in Del Valley at bringing parents together around this idea. And so in some ways, I think we have to kind of throw it back a little bit on parents. There was a group of parents who right before COVID were organizing to let parents know in East Austin, just the basic things. Teachers aren't certified. They have less experience. AISD has college counselors, et cetera. So I think in some ways it's up to parents to engage on that. I think districts have to talk more about the opportunities they provide. I get frustrated with districts that every time Harmony has a student that goes to an Ivy League, it's all over their newsletter. I think districts have, larger districts have lots of those kids, but you never really know about it. Scholarship opportunities, charters will get that number out. This million, $10 million. Well, Del Valley itself probably has 10 times that. So I think districts need to talk more about opportunities that are there that they kind of take for granted. I'll find out a new program at an elementary school in Austin that is just absolutely phenomenal, but I didn't know about it. So it's hard, sometimes hard to know. So I think on those two things are very important that parents themselves, it's really need to, and I suppose both districts and also groups like you guys and even some of the groups I work with need to reach out more to parents. So that they know, because right now I think they don't know. And they're still going to be, charters are going to be there, and they probably are some options for many parents. But it's important to understand what the impact is of this unlimited expansion. That's the really big key. Do we want to close more neighborhood schools in East Austin and replace them with charter schools when neighborhood schools are a hub of our community? Charter schools can close. They don't have to give much notice, et cetera, that we, all the things we talked about don't have to take all kids serve fewer special needs kids. What do we want in our community? And so I think those are the really important questions of that parents need to be asking. Well, it's interesting. I don't know if you're thinking of this, Nicole, but talking about how schools, local ISDs aren't as good about bragging about themselves is what I hear. It's because they're like, of course we do this and we do this and then we move on to educating kids. Of course we have after-school care and we have meals and transportation. It's such a mind shift, I would imagine, for them to be like, no, we have to market now too. (laughs) Right. Well, you wouldn't think you need to brag about it, right? That's just what they do. That's right. You wouldn't brag about your school nurse and how involved your librarian is in the whole fabric of the school. And yet, I don't think I've ever seen a librarian as a staff person on a charter. There probably are some, and you may hear now that I've said there aren't many. I've never seen one. There probably are some, but I don't routinely, they don't have librarians. I think about the importance of the librarian in my son's elementary school, organizing book fairs and just getting kids engaged. It's, the janitor was very important. Part of the fabric of the community charter schools usually just, they have contracts with janitorials. I do think districts need to, it's exactly what you said, they don't think about a school nurse or the librarian as being this real asset as, as they're putting the, the whole 
tapestry of their campus and our district together and the services they provide on Saturdays for parents and et cetera, after school care, things like that. Charters will say, in fact, there's a new report out by the Texas Charter School that charters, that kind of quote competition improves the public schools. And that's a new narrative that I'm, every narrative, we've begun to break those narratives down. And really these charter narratives that charters would say, oh, we get less money. We've proven that's not true. We take all kids. They don't take all kids. And now I think this idea of every school improves, I think is actually, I've got data to show you can see it that in fact, nearby neighborhood schools actually as charters cream the higher performing students. And again, you can see it in the data as they cream higher performing students, the neighborhood schools begin to struggle. And then, as you said, Nicole, then if you have to begin to start cutting, it's this downward sort of spiral or vortex. So I don't think that narrative works. A lot of the innovation that many districts started were way before charters were proliferating. Early college high schools came out of public schools, global studies, young women's leadership, all the career and technology education, which is just exploding with P-Tech and culinary arts and all those things that keep us have nothing to do with charter schools locating next door. So I think it's a narrative we, that's one of the things I'm working on now is just, you want to know the truth. There may be some things that came out of that. That's what I appreciate the most about this discussion is that it's not about demonizing charter schools at all. It's about transparent information and being honest about how these systems work and what the charter system, the effect that it is having on the public school system. It's just about transparency and being real about the effects. And that would be, I think, the one thing I'd leave is that we must look at the impact, both the fiscal impact and which, of course, then has everything to do with programs and services and staffing. If we don't do that, then that's when we're going to lose the real essence of our public schools. And it doesn't matter if you're in a community where there are a few charter schools, it's going to affect the entire district and the entire geographic area. And I mean, you see it now. So it's not like coming. It's here. It's just a question of what happens in the next two to 10 years. It's a great place to leave it. Yeah. For your efforts, you're very impressive. Yes. So we're going to try to end on a silly note. (laughs) We like to do this thing called attention mentions where you just mention something that has your attention. So it can be like movie you really enjoyed or a book or an article, not necessarily something that you love, but just like, oh, I can't get this out of my head. So Nicole, do you have anything? And we'll just go around. Oh my goodness. I don't. Can I go later? Okay. I'll do a silly one. Uh, This is going to like show you who I am before I fall asleep, but I've been watching the Real Housewives Ultimate Girls Trip Ex-Wives Edition, and it's really ridiculous. It's all these women who are on the different franchises come together to this house for eight days and have fun and fight, have fun and fight. And it's it's like, uh, I don't have to think like it's a nice sort of a palate cleanser, I guess, for my brain. <laughs> so that's what I'm watching. I love it. I feel like I've seen some clips. Oh, God. Well, I'm such a big mystery watcher, but this will be serious. But I will try to get you guys the, I believe I have a copy of it. The state board always awards a teacher of the year award. It's an HEB award, but they're announced at the state board meeting. And there were two teachers who spoke back in June. And oh my gosh, it was a packed audience because it was also the day they were doing the charter vote. So lots of people were there. These teachers, one from the Valley and one from, I can't remember where he was from. It was incredible in terms of the It was not one of those kind of trite speeches. We love kids. We're committed to our job. It was anecdotal. It talked about the difficulty. It talked about the need for more support and more funding. Again, people were just stunned. And then I had a very sweet thing that happened. Literally, I walked out of that meeting and the state board had just vetoed four charters. And I couldn't get out of the parking garage at UT because all the kids were just getting out of orientation at UT. And it was like totally backed up. Oh, well, I'll just... I'll run into the little chapel that's there. I've been meaning to go into it. I can't remember the artist. I'm blanking on the artist's name. Anyway, I went in there for a few minutes. It was beautiful. And then I was going to run into the Blanton Museum because I figured it's still backed up. Anyway, I'm going out. I don't stay long because I decide, oh, I'm just, I need to get back to work. I run into just out of the blue in the hallway. Someone says, is that Patty Everett? And I turned around. It was my son's first grade teacher. So I just heard this teacher of the year and I, Miss Graham from Pease Elementary, and her husband was there. I never had met him, and she's retired now. But immediately she said to him, and these are just how important teachers are, oh, 
you remember me telling you about Patty's son. He was a little boy who wore the white shrimp boots all the time. My family in Louisiana, my sister had given him these white shrimp boots, rubber. They're very hot, but he wore them constantly when he was in first grade. She remembered all that, what, 25 years later? And I was just so touched by that. So that's what I'll end with is the importance of teachers. I love that. That's beautiful. The importance of teachers. So that's all. I watch a lot of silly things too, but. No, I'm glad you (laughs) shared. Yeah, you shared that. that. And maybe I won't be as silly this time. I'll share a documentary that I watched called Fair Play. I actually had to pay to rent it. It's about the tasks, especially that exist in homes and how women just take those on often without even thinking about it. And so that mental load. And so they followed couples where they were trying to address that within their home. And it was good. It was Reese Witherspoon's production company produced it, but it's called Fair Play. I rented it on iTunes. So has it changed your life yet? Here's what I will say, though, is that when I ask my husband to do things, I don't quite set him up the way I used to. (laughs) They talk a lot in there about really handing over the task and letting them take it from the beginning to the end. And so that's something that I've really tried to take on board and really own is like, if I'm asking him to do something, then I'm really going to give it to him. I'm not going to manage it. I'm not going to like babysit him through it. Why didn't you do that? Yeah. Why didn't you do it my way? Yeah. So that's a little takeaway I have, but it hasn't revolutionized my life quite yet, but we're working on it. Small changes. That's right. Yes. I love it. I'm going to check it out. Well, thank you again, Patty. Yeah, we so appreciate having you. And your level of expertise is unbelievable. Thank you. And like I said, every time I talk to Patty, I learn 20 plus new things. (laughs) That's great. Well, one caveat, should you get everything I do is public data. I hope I haven't misstated anything in here. I may have gotten one of the billion dollars wrong or something. But there is a speaker of the house for many, many years ago used to say when he was talking about the budget, the federal budget, billions and billions of dollars. Now we're talking real money. So I think with charter schools and things like that, when you start getting into the billions, it's like. 20 billion, 22 billion, somewhere in the round. Yeah, más o menos. <laughs> yeah, well, thanks again. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for joining me, Nicole Abshire, and my co-host, Claire Campos O'Neill, on Go Behind the Ballot. Hopefully, we've demystified some little portion of Texas politics, and we hope that you'll do more with us. Check out our website at www.gobehindtheballot.com where you'll find links to all of our social media and you will find our community. Let's join together and do more. We hope you'll let us know what is working and we hope you'll join us next week. Thanks everybody and have a good one.